I don't uh, fault or hold against or begrudge anyone if their perspective is what why should I pay attention to the Bible at all anymore <laughs> like if, if their if their opinion is uh, that thing has only ever done harm by me um, and they'd need to just leave it unopened on their bookshelf or, or just more likely in goodwill or at the bottom of a trash uh, I, I say hey I well, I don't say I get it because I don't fully get it, but I say that makes sense. If you are in the midst of or have already gone through a faith shift, moving from a more conservative understanding of God, the Bible, Jesus, and church to a more progressive one, and you still have questions and you still need some handles to hold on to so that you don't lose your mind, if you need to feel less alone, then Colby Martin is a wise and compassionate guide. Please enjoy this conversation with Colby Martin. Well, I'm here with my new friend, Colby Martin, author of The Shift, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. Uh, Colby, is he lives in San Diego, and I was just with him a couple months ago. That was so fun, man. You hosted us for a little beer and, and uh, a great conversation. Uh, so, Colby, thanks for coming on the show. Ah, Steve, this is wonderful. I appreciate the invite. And yeah, isn't it fun when you meet people IRL that you have yeah. somewhat connected with over the interwebs and then you travel to their city and you're like, hey, I'm in your city and we're kind of connected. Do you want to take a flyer that maybe neither one of us are as <laughs> weird as and off-putting as we might? <laughs> and then you connect in real life and it was it was nice. It was yeah, so, I loved it. It I was it. fun. I, I actually told uh, our friend, my friends, Scott and Micah, when we were walking away and you were going to your car, I was like, oh man, that was really good. Like sometimes those IRL meetings with people mm -hmm. who use or, you know, can go the other way. It's like, ooh, <laughs> why did we do that? <laughs> that was so lame. <laughs> but I had the total opposite feeling when I was, it was so refreshing just to talk life and church and pastoring and theology. And uh, you were just, it was gracious of you to carve out a little time to be with us. So that was so fun, man. And then, you know, we started dreaming up an event, which we still have to do. It just will yeah. need to be, it'll need to be delayed a little bit because of the circumstances of our world. But, um, you know, hopefully we can oh, get you. Is this you, is this you telling me now that we've canceled the event? This oh, is how you're telling me? 100% on, on the on live air. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that's awesome. I, I am at this point assuming that my entire tour is I just know. kind of uh, paused. So. It's well, yeah. you know, who knows? Like we're right. We're, it's so day by day now. Right. I mean, it's at, like yeah. I keep saying that it's day by day. And then people say, dude, it's hour by hour, you know? So, um, but, uh, yeah, you know, with books coming out, who knows, who knows? Um, but getting you to Minneapolis, um, is going to be fun when it happens. You uh, know, I'm looking forward to it. 2027. So, um, well, let's, I mean, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> 2027. <laughs> 2027, uh, you know, when your kids are, are out of high school and all that stuff. Yeah. Right. Oh okay. man. So let's hope not. Um, one of the things that, that I'm so, so you wrote this book, The Shift, uh, Surviving and Thriving After Moving from Conservative to Progressive Christianity. And so I have a bunch of questions because this is just right in my wheelhouse of things I love to talk about. Um, 
But one of the things I was like intrigued in a good way by was like you used those phrases right in your subtitle, progressive and conservative. And so I want to ask you like that because it seems like a like a good but bold but also ooh move. So what made you sort of choose that to be that out loud and 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 bold about what the shift is? Yeah. So I have used the phrase progressive Christian to describe myself for like the past, I don't know, seven, eight years, knowing, and when I get the chance to unpack it, I will, but knowing at least in my mind that it's lowercase p progressive and lowercase c Christian, and and there's an asterisk on both those, uh, I recognize that neither one of them exactly articulate where I find myself in any given moment as it relates to religion and spirituality and faith. Neither one gets exactly it, but it's at least close enough, right? It's, it's in a yeah. ballpark. Yeah. So for me, that's been useful terms. Um, I find that, you know, terms labels oftentimes are incredibly needed and necessary to give a sense of uh, uh, belonging, to give a sense of location, to, to identify yourself within a particular context. And then, of course, we get to a point where we got to transcend those labels. So for many people the idea of calling themselves a progressive Christian feels antiquated or going backwards. But for many people, it's, it's a, it's a helpful way to talk about it. Okay. So all that to say, why is it my subtitle? Because I think if nothing else, I want people to know right from the get go that if in any way, shape or form, your experience has been a movement along any sort of spectrum from something that has felt in the past, more conservative traditionally, traditionalist towards something that's a little more left liberal progressive i don't care the label is less important to me uh, than the idea of conveying that it's a it's a there's a spectrum there's a journey at stake here and uh yeah so i wanted people to know right away yeah i can actually relate to that whether Mm -hmm. i call myself a progressive christian or not i don't know um whether i might have identified as a you know quote conservative christian back then i don't know but i i think most people get what's it, what the implication is here, that it's a movement, it's a journey, it's an evolution, a transformation, a growth. Um, so I find, I find at least using those two markers on, on the spectrum is a helpful way to talk about it. Well, thanks for that. I think that's really helpful too, because I think you can, on the one hand, be so vague when you talk about, you know, evolving your faith or moving along the faith spectrum or advancing your stages of faith. Uh, so as to not quite scratch that itch that I think you're right. So many people have right now that are, are, are moving away from an understanding of faith that they have had and moving towards something else. But I think they feel sometimes a little crazy. I think they sometimes get scapegoated by their tribes. And so I think they need some people to say, it's okay. (laughs) You're not crazy and you're not alone. So that's part of why I'm super excited about the fact that this book's coming out. Um, But uh, so I want to get to sort of how you move toward from conservative to progressive, but would you describe Colby Martin 10 or 12 years ago, like in terms of, <laughs> you know, what, you, the, yeah. yeah, just what you, what you believe, what your frame of reference was in terms of Christianity or theology, uh, pick, pick any of those and go. Yeah. So I've got, um, I've got this chapter. One of the chapters here in the book is, uh, let's see. Okay. So chapter nine 
It's titled, Relax, You've Come So Far. <laughs> what to do when you're mortified by your past beliefs and behavior. <laughs> yeah. So I'll get an entire chapter of Steve dedicated to these moments uh, that a lot of people on this journey have where they think back to their previous yeah. iteration of themselves yeah. and their whether it's what they used to believe and or how they used to treat people as a yeah. result of those beliefs. Um, yes, yeah, so I got I opened up that chapter with some, with some <laughs> descriptive stories of what, yeah, yeah. of who I was, um, 15 or so years ago, I came across a term, um, number of years ago, it was a comedian, uh, and he talked about being oversaved. And as uh, soon as yeah, he said it, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. Oh no, that gets it. I like yeah. I, that. That describes me well from like, age 17 through about 25, 26, I don't know that, that decade yeah. of, of life, sort of high school, college, post-college first pastoral job oversaved. I was, I could Jesus juke with the best of them, which is, you know, you take any conversation or any phrase mm -hmm. and you just pivot it suddenly to where you're talking <laughs> about Jesus. Uh, I held no shame or embarrassment with asking random people about what would happen if they died night. Um, I, I, <laughs> I took it upon myself to um, to just be the Bible answer man, to always have an answer, whether in season or out. I was always prepared, whether in season <laughs> or out, to give an answer for everything. And if you're not picking it up right now, Colby is beautifully <laughs> sprinkling in all these scripture references that yeah. if you are picking it up, you're loving it. And if you are, that's what's going on. It's so great. And uh, and as I say in the book, my you know, my tribe back then um loved me for yeah, it. Yeah. I was rewarded for having all the answers. I was rewarded for um, being unashamed of my faith in any context and being um, never being embarrassed to talk about it. And, and sure, I look back on it now with a little bit of cringiness. Yeah. I, I think about, I tell a story of uh, in college when I was invited to speak at a youth event and the event was called Boycott Hell Night, and it was like a anti. It yes. was like an uh, not an anti-Halloween, but it was held on Halloween yeah, as a yeah. you know alternative to yeah. trick or treating. Boycott Hell Night. Get all the high school students to come out, uh, and every year someone gave a presentation on hell and just yeah. made it as yeah. literal and scary as possible. And then invited you know did the typical kind yeah. of altar call thing. And I was invited to to speak, and there were four hundred high school students there, and I gave the scariest message on hell that I could. And then <laughs> I invited people to to do the prayer and fill out the cards. And I like 95. So this is my claim to fame. 95 kids that night accepted Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior. And I went back to college the next day and like just bragging that my ratios were higher than Billy Graham. It was just, it was amazing. Um, God really did something amazing so last night. It was, it was a one to one in four conversion ratio, oh, yeah, man. Mail, MailChimp would put you in like all-star category with that sort of conversion ratio. So yeah, I mean, that was me. And, and uh, in many ways, like I said, I, I cringe when I think about that, but also as yeah. I say in the book, I have a whole lot of grace and kindness for my past self. Yeah. Because what other, realistically, what other choice did I have? I was, yeah. I was, I was a, a manifestation of my context. Yeah. Um, given my life circumstances, how I was raised, all of that, that was pretty much who I was going to be mm -hmm. regardless. So it doesn't do me a whole lot of good to look back on that with, uh, with any sort of shame um, or regret. Like, no, that's just, I was doing the best I can with what I had at that time. Yeah. Well, I, I love the, the grace and humor with which you shared some of those stories. Cause I certainly have some of them 
as well. Um, so like what, what were some of the events that led you to start questioning that way of thinking and being and start led you, led you to start not seeing that tribe as your tribe? Yeah. There was a moment, um, so I was a, uh, I was an associate worship pastor at a large mega church in Salem, Oregon, and I was on some men's camp for the weekend. And I don't remember what the speaker said that night. I don't, I don't really know that it had anything to do with what happened later in the evening. But, uh, as we were going to bed that night, I'm laying in the cabin, unable to sleep because I don't know if you've been to a, men, a men's camp before, Steve, but men snore oh, yeah, big really time. loud. Yeah. And, uh, and <laughs> there was just so much snoring in this cabin. So I wasn't sleeping for external factors, but then there was these internal factors that were keeping me from sleep that night. And I remember lying there thinking really for the first time. And I, again, I have no idea where this thought came from, but for the first time, I, I remember thinking the thought, why does my tradition why does Christianity teach that the mercy of God, which we have songs about and psalms about, um, seemingly endures forever, the mercy of God never ends, but why is it that my tradition teaches that the mercy of God stops mm. the minute that we die? Mm -hmm. And I started thinking like, okay, so when people die now... And at that time I was, you know, firmly rooted in my conservative evangelical theology. So at that time I would have been like, okay, so when people die, they're either sent to heaven or hell, but where's mercy at that point? Mm -hmm. Like, why does God's mercy suddenly be like, oh no, sorry, whatever, whatever your 50, 60, 70 years on mm -hmm. life, um, that like, that's it. There's no more mercy at this point. You had, you got mercy when you were alive, but now yeah. that you're dead, your destination's already locked in. And I just, I couldn't sleep that night because I was just chewing on this. Like, that's so weird to me that the mercy of God really doesn't endure forever if we're saying that there's no post-death mercy. And so I came home from that camp. Um, I, you know, I wasn't a universalist yet by any stretch of the imagination, but for the first time I was asking some real mm -hmm. serious questions that I'd never considered before. Um, and that, that's the first time I can remember the yeah. clothes of conservative Christianity feeling a bit tight, yes. itchy, like I'm outgrowing them a little bit. Well, and even, even to your, even to your question of why does the mercy stop? It, it, it's so fascinating. Like when you think about it, the very same conservative theology that would say God exists outside of time and you know, like God's God doesn't for God yesterday, today, and tomorrow is the same moment. Um, they can't, they, um, that framework doesn't believe that, that, that exists beyond death in terms of time. So that's just, yeah. that's fascinating yeah. to me that there's that, there's that contradiction. But, um, as you've sat with people, as you sit with people now, what are, you know, if the idea of hell and the mercy of God is one of the big questions that people wrestle with, what are a few others that people come to an end of or come to say, man, if it's really like this, then I got to be out? Yeah. So in the book, I, I tried to, I tried to take on what I saw as the four yeah. biggest kind of theological obstacles that people run into. So the book covers some theological obstacles and then it covers some interpersonal, um, relational, uh, and, and sort of internal 
battles yeah. as well, that, yeah. or I call them obstacles in the book, because the idea is that the book is kind of like a survival guide for becoming yeah. a progressive Christian. So in the book, I have a chapter on what to do when the idea of God no longer makes sense, mm-hmm. um, what to do with beliefs in and around Jesus, uh, what to do as it relates to the Bible now, what do I think, um, how do I engage with it, and then uh, church. I've got a chapter titled, I can't stand church, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Where can I find one? Yeah, <laughs> this is, this is how so many people at least find our church is this sense of, uh, oh, I'm so over church. Yeah. I've been wounded by it. I can't stand re- institutionalized religion or religious leaders. And also, do you know where there's one in my city? Because I'm still yeah. longing for community and belonging and I can't quite leave it entirely. Um, so those are kind of the, the four, I think the, the four obstacles that I've noticed come up the most for people yeah. as they go through this shift, move, leaving or getting kicked out of the conservative world and finding something more progressive. Um, so with God, it's a lot of things like, you know, we used to have the, and I say we meaning myself as a prior yeah. self-identified conservative evangelical Christian and those who have also shifted out. We used to have this idea that God was a being, um, well, we used to say up there because mm-hmm. we used to have this cosmological expectation that there were, there's three yeah. layers to the universe and God was just up at the highest. And now we have telescopes, so we know that's not real. There's no yeah. God up there. So now we've yeah. changed the way we talk about it to say God out there. Yeah. We're still, but we're still interacting with God as though God is a, a being located somewhere, a yeah. being that's just maybe bigger than us, more powerful than us, but still a being out there. And one of the things that happens when people shift is they realize that, that suddenly that way of thinking about God doesn't make much sense anymore. Yeah. Like God is just some being out there that occasionally interacts with the world in what way we can never really fully understand. Um, so I try to give some other ways to, that you could think about or conceptualize um, what you mean when you say God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's a really important thing is that, because I think a lot, of, and you probably run into this as well, is when people experience this shift, they think their options are either the conservative evangelical God from whence they came, mm-hmm. which like it or not, whether they would acknowledge it or not, is very similar to Michelangelo's old yep. white man in the sky. Yep. Um, nobody actually says that, but we operate as though we still sort of kind of think that. And the, and the, and the assumption is it's either that or atheism. Right. And I'm, I'm like, no, there's a lot of different uh, stops along the way between the, uh, the old white man in the sky and atheism. And so I try to offer some different ways for people to, to still maintain a connection with the divine, but thinking about it differently, talking about it differently. I talk about how God's not male. So let's stop saying he and him and his, because as long as we keep doing this, we keep conveying these subliminal subtle messages that if God is male, then male is God, which is to say that maleness is more divine, which is to say that men are slightly closer to God or better than God to be more masculine is to be more divine. And all, you know, all those messages are just super destructive and, um, yeah. So that's, that's one of the big ones is it kind of how to think about and talk about God. And let's camp out there for a second. And I, and I do want to get to the other three, but one of the things that I've found that becomes a question too, and it became a question for me because like maybe, maybe six or seven years ago, at least I stopped, even in my preaching and my writing, I stopped referring to God as he. But what I would do is I would refer to God as like God, God's self, 
I would, yeah. I would just use no pronouns. And then I got, it, it was like I was losing some, something that I missed, you know? And so then I, then I started saying, well, if God is not male, then God is not female, but God is reflected in both, you know, male and female. So God is both, God is both he and her. And so I started using that language. Um, do you find that along the, the stages of the progressive journey, people come to like miss, you know what I mean? Like, like conservative evangelicals that have become progressive at some point, they'll sidle up to you and whisper in your ear, kind of like they'll look around furtively and they'll say like, I kind of miss the personal God. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Do you ever, do you ever mm-hmm. get into those kind? And then like, sort of, how do you understand that? Or what do you, how do you walk people through that? Yeah. Um, I've, I, to answer your question, yes, a hundred percent. I think yeah. that is, I think that is probably the most common trajectory is that um, people realize that thinking about God as being, as a being, as a male being uh, cannot be true, cannot be real. Right, right. And so they swing the pendulum the other way, mm-hmm, un- mm-hmm. which I argue is the correct move. Yep. So let's talk about God with just no pronouns yep, because yep. we've got to sort of, a lot of this is, um, you know, my therapist talks about recording over our old tapes with yeah. new tapes. So we have to sort of like, cause we carry these messages in our bodies. So we have to, we have to go through a season where we, where we fundamentally change how we respond to what it means to talk about God. And I think it's an important move is to, is to de gender God yep, yep. for a season. Yeah. But then I, Steve, you are, you are totally onto something here, which is, but then there comes a point where people are like, wow, now suddenly God doesn't feel real personal anymore. Yeah. God just feels like star Wars, the force, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. just this, this impersonal energy. Um, and there's a longing for, the way that Jesus talked about Abba Father. Yeah, yeah. There's that longing for that personal connection. And so then I think after we've swung the pendulum to de-gender God, then we can sort of re-gender God, which is the Genesis 1 in, in you know, God made them male and female in God's image. That it, mm-hmm. that it takes all of the genderful expression of humanity to fully represent the divine. Yeah. And so at our church, at Sojourn, we will we will interchangeably move throughout he and she. We will talk about divine father and divine mother, probably like a 80, 20 ratio, Mm -hmm. right? So probably like you're going to find female pronouns far more often at Sojourn than you will, will male. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because we're trying to reinforce this messaging and, and and remind people of the, the divine feminine, which has completely been lost in in so many religious contexts. Uh, So yes, I totally think that is a, a trajectory that people are on. And I think it's a really good move to eventually make, uh, to bring that personal connection back in through, through all of the gender pronouns. Well, I think, I think that's a, that's a really good nuanced clarification of like, it's really hard actually to go nonstop flight from only using he to right away using he, she, like Mm -hmm. I found people, you know, that's like too big of a Mm -hmm. move, but Mm -hmm. so I think to, to go from, just using he to gender less pronouns, um, or no pronouns at all. And then, so I think that's really helpful. Well, let's, I mean, let's, if you, if you don't mind, I think we're skipping one, but let's, 
or maybe we're not. I can't remember the order, but let's go to the Bible because you even brought up Genesis 1. And so uh, I would say, because I grew up in the same kind of background that you did, the Bible is like the Pope in the evangelical world. What it says goes, what it says it says, what it says is literal, what it says is true, what it says is authoritative. And what? how do you start to, to, to unpack really what is a kind of idolatry of, of the Bible? But, well, let me, just, let me just leave it at that question. I have a lot more follow-up. So how do you start to unpack some of that without throwing it away or do you need to throw it away? I don't uh, fault or hold against or begrudge anyone if their perspective is what, why should I pay attention to the Bible at all anymore? (laughs) Like if if their, if their opinion is uh, that thing has only ever done harm by me, um, and they need to just leave it unopened on their bookshelf or, or just more likely in goodwill or at the bottom of a trash. Uh, I, I say, Hey, I, well, I don't say I get it cause I don't fully get it, but I say that makes sense. Of course you would, of course yeah. you would. And usually these are people who, um, find themselves in particular marginalized and or oppressed groups. So mm-hmm. this, these could be women who for so long in their life, people have weaponized the Bible to keep them as a second class person, uh, LGBTQ individuals, uh, you know, have, people have used the clobber passages to justify the discrimination against them. So why would they want to come back to this thing that has been, uh, used to wound them and harm them at such deep, deep levels. So for those individuals, um, I'm just like, I get it. Yeah. Uh, it makes, of course, of course you would, of course you would not want to give this a second chance or a second reading. And, uh, and it makes sense, and I give them permission. A lot of a lot of my work I've found is just giving people permission to create a sense of um, boundaries and protection around their hearts from the way that religion and religious leaders have wounded them, um, and just say, "Yeah, do that." And maybe it's just for a season, or maybe it's forever. I I don't know, um, but I'm not I'm not going to begrudge them for it. I think then, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say I I think that's such a beautiful. Uh, posture, because I do think anyone who's come from the conservative evangelical background, the message is certainly you can't throw away the Bible no matter what. And if you do, then you're gone. Uh, And maybe that's, maybe that message will be sent with some sweetness or no sweetness with some rancor or no rancor, but it'll be really, really clear. And so to say, for you to just say, you know, I don't begrudge those people and some people really need, need to do it and maybe forever. And maybe that's okay. I think that just can't be overstated how much some people need to hear that. Yeah. And I, and I think then another important part of this is I think you use the phrase all or nothing. And that is exactly what conservative evangelical Christianity is, is the Bible is either all divinely inerrant and inspired and infallible, or then, you know, their counterfactual is, well, or then it's nothing and we just throw it away. So in, in, in their minds, if you mess with any part or you, or you question any verse or you tweak any interpretation, it's a threat to the entire Mm -hmm. house of cards that is the word of God for them. 
And I think a far more, uh, far more, well, I would say accurate, but whatever, far more helpful posture for the the Bible. If if one wants to to come back to it in any uh, for any source of wisdom or, or or guidance, I just simply say, look, just take the parts that are useful, take the mm-hmm. parts that speak to you, take mm-hmm. the parts that are good, and if you come across something. Um, that doesn't work or uh, conjures up all these old uh, messages, then just leave it, mm-hmm. just leave it, just mm-hmm. move on. Um, and, and that is such a, that attitude is such a threat to the the sort of inspired inerrant word of God system. And I, and I get it, but it's such a threat to it. Uh, but I have found incredible uh, liberation and peace uh, in, in coming to the Bible with this permission to take what is good from it and and leave the parts that either I don't understand right now or that are just too weird um, or I just might be antiquated. I don't know. So I think that's another part of it yeah. to give people permission to to um, to sift through the, the wheat and the chaff of the Bible itself. Well, Colby, don't you think, I mean, I know maybe certain people will say that this is a kind of straw man argument, but I don't I don't think that it is. I mean, I, I think the Bible is so is filled with so many different teachings and ideas, some of which are in direct contradiction with each other, that to say that you do anything but pick the ones that seem to give life to you um, is a dishonest way of, of looking at it. Anyone who says, I follow the entirety of the Bible, um, even, even people who are thoughtful, like, I just want to say, like, that's not honest. That's just not honest. You, you couldn't possibly do it. And so to me, when you say what you said, it, it, I, my shoulders go down a little bit and it's not because like, Oh, you get to pick and shoot, you know, like, I mean, some of the best parts of the Bible, I would never pick like uh, almost everything that Jesus says, who, who would pick that? Like that's, you know, I mean, no one (laughs) would pick to do those things. Um, so anyway, I just want to say that that's, not only does that ring true for me, but it also um, it also uh, gives me permission to have an honest faith, you know. Yeah. And and in my experience, that's what drives a lot of people away. Is like you know when you just have to just throw up your hands and say, I like, I can't live an honest faith this way. So I just need to be out. Then what's you know like is that the alternative? And then again, it's all or nothing, in or out. You know, and yeah. like that's just such a poor way to live. So, yeah, yeah, that that phenomenon of the uh, the pick and choose. I, I you know I I know well that line yeah. from the evangelical world because it was one I I leveraged for so many years. Yeah, and you're right. The the blinders are powerful as it relates to those who who I, I want to say pretend, but they really don't think they're picking and choosing, mm-hmm. but they are. Yeah. Like you said, everybody is, everyone is, um, yeah. on some level, in some way, picking and or choosing, uh, whether it's some verses over and against others, mm-hmm. some ideas over and against others, or just which ones to prioritize, or even it's picking and choosing uh, via a, a particular hermeneutic. It might even just be as simple as, oh, the Old Testament was under uh, law, but now we're under grace. Well, you have just 
chosen a hermeneutic <laughs> uh, to say that those no longer apply, but these do. Yeah, That is a picking and a choosing. So one of the things I suggest in the book is to let love be your new hermeneutic. Yeah. And hermeneutic is just a an overly fancy way of saying the lens through which you read a thing. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's like pick and choose using love. So if any story or poem or verse leads you in the direction of more love towards self or others, then, then pay attention to that. Use that. Yeah. If any verse like, uh, takes it in a different direction yeah. <laughs> towards, uh, disconnection, disintegration, um, then let's just leave that one behind. So yeah. for me, I'm totally with you there. Like everybody picks and chooses. It's a really hard phenomenon to get people to see if they don't see it yet. But once you do see it, I think it frees you up to be like, Oh, I've been doing this the whole time. <laughs> I just yes. wasn't being, I just wasn't aware of it. Yeah. Uh, and now I can do it with intention and mindfulness. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that can be really good, really helpful. That's good, man. So w- what about Jesus? Um, what are some ways in which you helps people, either reimagine Jesus or, or see Jesus again? I think this is one, one of the obstacles that gives people the most, uh, heartburn (laughs) is, is, uh, now what do I do with my relationship, my belief in my theology around Jesus? Um, because, because that is, you know, that is the central thing by which our entire religion is sort of built around. So understandably so. And what I have found to be the most helpful for people in terms of, and when I mean, when I say helpful, I mean, freeing people from these weights of, um, uh, this heaviness of, uh, like I'm doing it wrong or like, um, maybe I, maybe I am a heretic or, or maybe, uh, maybe God really is upset with me. Like so there's these weights that people who are on this journey, they carry with them. And one of the things I try to do in my life and with this book is to, is to help liberate people from some of that. So what I've found to be the most helpful when it comes to Jesus is to try and sh- demonstrate to them the idea that what if, what if Jesus never really cared what people believed about him? <laughs> what if, his primary hope was that people believed him. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've taken this idea where Jesus said, no, believe me that mercy is better than sacrifice. Believe me that forgiveness is better than revenge. Believe me that love is better than like trust that those ways of living, those teachings are true, um, that those will lead to life, life abundant. Believe me. And we've taken that and turned it into believe in Jesus. Now we have to uh, believe these these sort of propositional statements about him. And one of the things I say in the book is, um, it seems as though every time Jesus came up against somebody who had some sort of uh, belief about him, oh, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, his response was, okay, cool, but don't tell anybody. Like, yeah, yeah. just keep that to yourself. Like, that's not really why I'm here. I'm not here to get mm-hmm. people to worship me. I'm here because I want people to worship God and I'm moving them toward God. And so we, you know, Walter Brueggemann has this line where the proclaimed, uh, or no, the proclaimer has become the proclaimed. Yeah. Uh, and like as Soren Kierkegaard says, we are now, Jesus didn't want people to worship him. He wanted to, people to follow him. Mm-hmm. That's totally different. Yeah. Right, Steve? Like yeah. following yeah. Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus means living like him and in his way and trusting that his way of life really is the way that leads to fullness and abundance. But we have 
traded that in for a much cheaper and a much easier thing, which is just, oh, I just worship. I just believe that Jesus is the son of God. Well, now when you just worship someone, you can just keep them at a distance mm-hmm. and you don't, it you don't, doesn't actually have any uh, real accountable impact on your life. So for me, the thing that helps liberate people is to say, what you believe about Jesus really is not the point. Mm-hmm. It's really not. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I don't, God, Jesus does not really care what you believe about him. The goal here is that you would trust that um, what he was saying has truth and validity and purpose. And so go and do likewise. Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. And I think, you know, maybe some people would have to like pause the podcast and sort of scratch their head, you know, but I think yeah. it makes so much sense to me because, um, you can almost hide in, like, I have this thing about mystery, right? Like, like essentially you, you, you just have to embrace a whole lot of mystery if you're going to follow Jesus and believe in God. But like, do you, do you believe in mystery? Do you defend mystery? <laughs> do you No, you sort of participate mm. with it, you know, you sort of yeah. lean into it and it's surprising and it, you follow the, the river rafting guide and do what the river rafting guide tells you to do, you know, and, and where you might end up in a place you didn't inspect, expect to end up. So I think, I think that's a really powerful thing to say. And I think if people think about it for a while, it makes a lot of sense. And there's going to yeah. be a diversity of belief about what people think about Jesus and that's okay. You know? Yeah. I think a helpful exercise, uh, so I'll say this to the person listening, who's, um, like you said, currently just like, yeah, wait, like, what? Well, I was with you so far until this. Now you're saying it doesn't matter what I believe about Jesus. Well, yeah, I kind of am saying that. But here's here's what I think would be helpful for um, someone to to consider doing. And this is this is I did something similar to this in in this chapter in the book, is I mapped out my own uh, history of the varying uh, various iterations of beliefs I had about Jesus. And I, I tried to just put a timeline of my life from when I was five years old and I did the sinner's prayer right before bed with my dad. And all I knew about Jesus at that point was that he saved me from my sins, mm-hmm. which obviously as, as a five-year-old, that, who even knows what <laughs> I really believe, <laughs> but that's sinner. what I said, I believe. Yeah. And then I, I sort of mapped out from there. Um, I started adding these different elements of, okay, Jesus is also God, part of the Trinity. Okay, interesting. Uh, A few years later, I might have picked up another thing where, okay, Jesus is now the Lord of my life. Okay, so now like every part of my life has to be oriented around Jesus. And then a few years later, added. So what I talked about is I had this kind of expanding uh, ways of thinking about Jesus with these. At some point, I realized he's the liberator of the oppressed, and then I realized that he's the embodiment of the way. And I just, I had this sort of evolving, growing, expanding way of thinking about Jesus. Um, and then I noticed, well, that makes an interesting kind of like a, um, uh, like an upside or like a funnel, where at the base of the funnel is little Colby with a really small idea about who Jesus was. And then as I've grown in life, that view of who Jesus is has gotten wider and wider and more expansive and includes more and more and more and more people. And then I'm like, well, that's interesting to think about, as I understand Jesus, who started with this expansive, wide, everybody's in um, message, this radical hospitality. And then you start to look at how the later New Testament church started to close that a little bit. And then um, and then you have like divisions over theological uh, differences and and you start tracing church history and the funnel gets narrower and narrower and narrower. It's almost like the inverse of my 
journey with Jesus yeah. is kind of like the church's journey with how they thought about Jesus, where the, it gets narrower and narrower. And now we have these tens of thousands of different denominations, each claiming to have the most <laughs> right idea of who Jesus is. Okay, what's my point here? My point is, is I'm not prepared to look at my own life and say that there was one point along that way of all the different ways of thinking about Jesus, there was one point that was the most right Mm-hmm. And then the other ones were all wrong. Mm-hmm. Nor am I prepared, or do I think anybody is, look at the 2,000-year history of Christianity and say, and dare say, at what point did anybody get it, quote, right? If yeah. the point is to get it right about who, if the point is to have the right belief about Jesus, then who gets to say where along the curving, crisscrossing path of church history, where did we most right? Right. Uh, and who got, and who gets to say, so I think if someone would do that own exercise in their own life, they would say, Oh, it's, it's not about when did I have it most right? And do I have it most right now? Clearly getting it right. Can't be what it's all about. Mm-hmm. It can't be what it's all about. Um, and as I say in the book, if getting it right is the point then I think we need to be honest and say that Jesus wasn't a very good teacher. Yeah. We often say he's one of the best teachers of all time. But if the point is to just prepare people for some post-life test, and all they have to do is answer one question right to to get into heaven, then Jesus like <laughs> miserably failed to prepare people for that test. Yeah. And I think we need to be honest about that. Yeah. The way he used parables to like intentionally confuse people. Mm-hmm. I, that's not a very good teacher if you're just trying to get them to get the right answer for the test, right. is to confuse them. Uh, the way that he would shut people down and say, no, don't tell others about me. Yeah. No, if the whole point is, yes, get everybody to believe this thing about me, then it would be, holy crap, go tell everybody about mm-hmm. me. He never did that. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I think that's an interesting exercise is for people to explore their own uh, the evolution of their own way of thinking about Jesus. And then are you really prepared to say, Oh, you know what? At age 23, that was when I had it the most, right? I don't know that, I don't know that we can, can do that. And I don't think we should do that. Well, I like that too. I really like that too. Um, because then you can look back at your 23 year old self, which you might have a tendency to look back and cringe, but you could say that I, you know, I believed everything I could believe at that point. And it was, and it belongs as Richard Rohr says, and it was okay. And it was all I could do at that point. And then my faith evolved, my faith shifted, my faith kept growing. And so now I believe what I believe now. And so, and if we can give ourselves that compassion, I feel like then we can get out of the trap of feeling like, well, you know, I'm right in what I believe, even use the word progressive or conservative. I'm right because I'm more progressive or I'm right because I'm more conservative. No. We don't need to play those, you know, dualistic binary games of who it's, it's, That's right. you know, it's more about like, like, like you said, are, do you trust in the way of Jesus that that is the way toward a life that is, that is actually full and, and the way to being the most human. And, um, and I think that it just allows us to be more compassionate, I think. So, okay. Last, maybe last section, um, of questions is around the church. And I loved how you titled your, like, I can't stand the church. Help me find one. <laughs> Cause that's so true. Yeah. Um, so what do you think, what do you think the church is, um, is these days? And how do you, 
navigate and help people shift into an understanding of church that isn't so toxic? I, uh, earlier today, I had a large Zoom conference call with about 20 other um, pastors and ministry leaders who are in these more progressive spaces. You know, we're trying to um, trying to connect and figure out how in the world do we keep doing this ministry thing in the context of the coronavirus, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure when this podcast is releasing, but at the moment we are in the midst of, of quite a global pandemic. And, you know, there are people on that call that were legitimately thinking this, uh, this may shutter the doors of their church. Like they mm-hmm. may not make it through this, whether yeah. it's financing or whether it's just people not coming back after having a season of not attending. Um, but there were others who said, actually, it might go the other way. Mm-hmm. This, this season of social distancing and quarantining and, and staying home, um, it might just lead to a, a kind of uh, flooding of faith mm-hmm. communities mm-hmm. on the other side of it as people realize how important it is to the experience of being human that we have community and belonging and relationships. Um, for me, I don't really practice future prognostication all that much. Yeah. I just, I'm generally always of the opinion, generally always, that's a really <laughs> good sentence. Always. I'm generally always, usually every time I think, <laughs> um, that we don't really know who really knows yeah. what we have, is we have, we have now. So let's just figure out what we have now. Um, but I found myself getting off that call, just feeling really hopeful that there are so many people um, that identify as progressive Christian who, like myself, have probably all sorts of good reasons why to leave it behind. Mm-hmm. Um, all sorts of stories with pain and rejection from their church, from their faith communities. They have a lot of really good reasons to leave the church behind, but they don't. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. They, they stick around and they say, there's something still here. There's something. And so that's why I am still kind of in the game, if you will, yeah. of the church is I still believe that there is power in relationships and community and belonging, that there's power in investing in our spiritual well-being, but doing it with others. Um, I still think that that matters and is good. And until there's another form of, um, that is better equipped to do it than the church for better or worse, this, this model of meeting every seven days, Mm -hmm. um, like it has lasted for 2000 years. Mm -hmm. So that tells me there's something in the model that, that has this resonance with human and community that maybe it's, you know, we're not quite ready to, 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 to chuck it out yet. Um, I know a lot of people have experimented with other forms of gathering, whether it's churches in a bar or home churches. And that's, and that's great. Um, my experience is that they haven't really had any sort of lasting, like a real lasting, um, sustainable impact. Um, because I think there's something about the local church that I still believe, Mm -hmm. um, has real power to change individuals' lives, families' lives and communities' lives. So, but what I think people who are on the shift, I think what they need um, is permission to engage with your church community in a different way. And for me, what that means is you don't have to show up on Sundays and 
any state other than exactly as you are. Mm-hmm. And I know that in the conserv in my more evangelical days, I know we said that like people yeah, are yeah. welcome just as you are. We said that, but we didn't, we didn't practice it. Yeah. We, we gave messages and songs and, um, we communicate ideas, which is yes, come as you are, but it, it's actually better if you're in a good mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, God actually likes it more if you're, uh, if you're, if you're more holy or if your behavior is better, we actually taught different things than what our word said. So now in these progressive communities is like, no, 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 you can come. Don't feel like you got to clean yourself up. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't feel like you got to put yourself together. Um, just showing up means you belong here. You don't have to fit in. You don't have to believe anything in particular, um, or look any certain way. You just belong by virtue of being a part of the human race. Uh, and I think those sorts of communities, well, what I've witnessed is communities like ours, and I'm sure like yours, give people types of healing from past spiritual wounding that they wouldn't have had were it not for being in the context of a local church. Yeah. I think that's hopeful too. And that's realistic. You know, there's, I like your thing of like, I'm not a future, generally always not a future (laughs) prognosticator, Um, you know, because it's like, this is what we have right now. And it, it may change, but there's still something hopeful and beautiful about a collection of people uh, with maybe diverse theological perspectives that gather around something bigger than their differences, you know, and, um, and also bigger than their beliefs, frankly. Um, so I think I find that really hopeful. So, uh, thanks for that. Well, so this, so your book, the shift surviving and thriving after moving from conservative to progressive Christianity. Um, I assume people can find it wherever people buy books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Okay. It's, it's out there. It's available out there. for pre-order now. Well, again, I don't know when you're releasing this. It releases on April 21st. Okay. So whether you're pre-ordering or ordering, it's out there. Okay. And what's the, I know you write a great, I subscribe to it, to your uh, newsletter. Uh, so people can subscribe to your newsletter, check out your website. Uh, where's the best way to get a hold of your work? Yeah. Go to colbymartinonline.com and you can get the newsletter. You can go to all the social meds. Fortunately, uh, my mom named me Colby. So at Colby Martin is available on almost every platform. So Instagram at Colby Martin, Twitter at Colby Martin, uh, Facebook. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find out there. And yeah, I do have a newsletter that I send out. Um, uh, and yeah. Okay, man. People, people know, people know out there how to find individuals like myself. So I believe in their ability to do so and follow me if you want, no pressure. Well, and maybe you read, uh, Colby's first book. I'm talking to not you right now, Colby, but the listeners, maybe I got meta all of a sudden. Um, maybe you read his first book on clobber. Is, is there anything you want to say about that Colby? Cause if they're just getting to know you for the first time, I would want them to know about that. Yeah. So my first book, yeah, thank you. My first book, uh, came out four years ago titled Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible on Homosexuality. And the idea with that book was, in part, to share my own story of becoming what I call an open and affirming Christian. So again, moving out of this conservative evangelical world, which is um, convinced that the Bible 
has adequate support and justification to discriminate and marginalize against people who identify as LGBTQ. So part of the book tells my journey of moving away from that and actually studying the Bible for the first time on this topic. Uh, and then the other part of the book is unpacking each of the six, what I call the, or what is called the clobber passages, the, the verses that historically have been used to justify this discrimination. Um, and it has, I mean, it, it sells more copies today than it did four years ago. This yeah. is this is a topic that is, you know, many people thought we'd be over this 10 years ago, but we're not. It's just, no. it's still with us. And, you know, I've been thinking about this second book here and this journey towards progressive Christianity. And really for, for most people who are on the shift, the, the hinge point is their theological posture towards lgbtq inclusion yep which is to say if they if they aren't yet affirming um if they are love the sinner hate the sin if they are the bible and god is still against gay people then they're going to be more on the conservative end of the spectrum but once they make that change and they realize oh gay people are god's children too mm -hmm. and same-sex relationships can be holy too then that suddenly becomes like this um, this landslide that puts them on a trajectory of moving towards a more yeah. progressive expression of Christianity. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, so, Colby, is the is the final book in the Trinity going to be about hell and universalism? I mean, is that is that where all, you know? I mean, there, there needs to be a third book in this in this Trinity. What's it going to be? Close. It's not hell. It's going to be on sin. Yes. So there is a third book in the Trinity. There, there is a third ah, book in the Trinity I and it's going it. to be on rethinking our ideas of sin. That's good, man. Well, Colby, um, like I said, it was so delightful to meet you in San Diego mm. a couple months ago. And I, I'm, I'm glad that we're continuing, uh, what was, what was started there. I'm eager for people to read this book because I feel like it is going to give them permission to continue to expand their faith and hold on actually to the a, a sense of the divine that is honest and that can hold their experience, which I think is so helpful. And I'm so thankful for people like you who take the time uh, to help people do that. So, um, yeah, man, thank you so much. And, uh, this was delightful for me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Steve. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. <laughs>